Hey everyone, this is episode number 19, entitled, um, Blessed Are the Merciful, or I'll I'll give another title to it, I think it's going to work out, a theme of uh, Strings Attached. So, uh, the sun is finally out in Seattle, so I was looking, I was like, I wonder if the last few episodes have been like extra angsty, and if you're living somewhere else in the world, you're like, why is Kyle, that's because we haven't seen the sun for like four months, man, okay? But the sun's out today, and it's gorgeous out. I'm looking out the window right now, and it's beautiful. And uh, and I feel good. I got some vitamins, and, <laughs> and I feel great. So let's jump into things, huh? Um, we're going through the Beatitudes, these sayings of Jesus, um, that remind us what it means to be human. Um, as Jesus came, it's like this fully human one, right? The son of man, he called himself. And uh, and he's he, he's trying to communicate to a people that have been dehumanized by an oppressive culture and time and system. And he is communicating to them a very good news of what it looks like to live truly human. And he says this, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. I want to read you this, um, this 2013 interview with Rob Bell. Uh, I had to dig through some YouTube uh, to find it. <laughs> I think I found, eventually found it on Vimeo because uh, it's from quite a while ago. But he uh, was in this interview at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, and actually in Seattle. And um, and the, one of the questions during the Q&A time was they asked him, um, okay, Rob, how do you face criticism? And this is right after he came out with this controversial, controversial book, book um, that uh, – uh, is uh, love wins and so it like got all these Christians super angry and they're like you don't believe in hell and um and somehow that became the most important thing that we have side note isn't that interesting that like that's that's somehow the most important part of our okay anywho the something that we've never been to or don't want to experience ourselves but we just are so convinced everyone else is going there but us side note let's keep moving um because I told myself I wouldn't be angsty. Sun's out, Kyle. Sun's out. All right. So, <laughs> so he, they asked him, how do you face criticism? And he began with a joke by stating kind of whimsically, well, don't Google your name. And I thought that was actually really solid advice. But then when he went on to share something a little bit more profound about what's behind that question. And he goes, there is a world of people who, if you say God is love, they go, are you even a Christian? That's not orthodox. And then he go, he went on to say, there's another world of people, though, who if you say God is love, they say, oh, that's awesome. And then you can go on to say, oh, yeah, and there's actually more. Jesus came to lead us into this love, to show up and, and die for this love. Really? Oh, that's that's so great. There's there's more? Oh, yeah, we can go, we can go on all day. And then Bell concluded, he goes, so I simply decided to give my life for these folks, gesturing to the second folks, right? Because the other folks will kill me. And I just think that that speaks volumes of what this passage is getting at. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That there's some kind of people out there. There's two groups of people. And one jumps for joy and is so interested and curious when when it is announced that God is love. And others want to dissect it and critique it and uh, add strings attached to it, and one will kill us, and the other one will give us life. And and I, looking back at like my probably like my fifteen years of 
vocational ministry, so just like a full-time pastor, I, I spent so much of my life trying to convince people to love people. <laughs> and I can tell you so many different like branding attempts and websites I started and sermons I preached and counseling sessions I've had and teams I've built and services, new services I started, <laughs> outreaches I've went on and mission trips I've gone on and just like so many years and years of trying to convince people to love people. And and I, th- I think I've just decided just to be around loved and lovely people. Because those who have those who are loved and lovely have 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 been shown mercy, and so so therefore they've become merciful. Like because the other ones will just they they well yeah they they just killed me. I just I don't know if I want to spend the second half of my life still trying to convince people to love people. I just would rather be around those who have been loved and are lovely because of it. <sighs> it's actually been really um, humbling being at the Esquaw Food and Clothing Bank because it's my first um, experience of working in the nonprofit area that's not Christian. And what I have found is the most lovely people on the planet and I don't have to hold their hands a whole lot like I'm the volunteer coordinator so I just we have about 150 volunteers that come through every week and by and large I don't have to try to convince them that this is worth their time and that this is really important they don't need a lot of encouragement or handheld or like really nifty sermons with alliterations and three points. I don't, they don't need a warm, fuzzy story. They just need to get out of their way so they could keep sorting food so that people will have something on to eat for dinner that night. Like, you know, that's what they're interested in. That's what they're compelled by. They, they, um, they've already been sold on the idea that, that we should love people, that we should be merciful we should care for our neighbors who are in need. And it's lovely to be around them. Like it's so intoxicating and encouraging. But I have found though that in any situation of of vocational justice, typically what burns people out the most is when we do start to put strings attached to things. Like that's, I've been involved in this work for a long time and I I found that the that usually the common characteristic of someone that gets burnt out in nonprofit vocational justice work is someone who started to put strings attached to how they give to people. So meaning like I'm going to give and help you in this area or I'm going to give you this, but I expect something in return. Whether it's like I expect I'm going to invite you to this addiction recovery thing, but I'm going to expect you to recover from addiction or I'm going to hand out this free food to you, but I expect you to improve your life. And in a year from now, you shouldn't need these services or, um, you know, whatever it might be that, uh, but there's this, this return on our investment. I, um, we do this in subtle ways too. Like I'm going to invest in a coworker, but I, I expect them to continue to improve. Otherwise it's a waste of my time. Right. And it, there's some truth to that. I agree. We shouldn't go around just wasting our time, but 
If we live our lives as a posture that we always expect a return on any investment of our time or resources we give, that's a really great way to find yourself burnt out of compassion. But I found that those who just decide to just freely give, as I mentioned earlier in the Beatitudes, that just decided to just, you know, we hope that's, oh my gosh, it's so important to hope. Um, but we we hope for people to improve. We hope for people to get over their addictions. We hope for people for, to improve their lives. We, we do. We always hope, but we, we don't give with strings attached. We give freely, right? I learned from my wife um, this week. It was so good. We had this really great talk, and I was just telling her like how I'm having trouble hoping for what's next. Like I just because I, I'm in this doctorate degree, and I have no idea what I'm going to do with it because, <laughs> yeah, I just have no idea. And, and she's like, "Well, um, or are you having trouble trusting that something like of what's like trusting for something really good to happen, and trusting that you know that." there's a plan out there. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, keep in mind though, you're still trusting. Like if you're not trusting for something good to happen, then you're trusting that nothing will happen. Either way, you're still trusting. And she's like, it's, you're going to just have to trust one way or another. It's not like you're trust or you don't trust. It's, it's, you're trusting, always trusting. It's just, are you going to trust for something good? And I was like, damn, babe. <laughs> it was like, it really stuck with me. And, uh, and I, so I want to trust. I want to live this life in a trusting posture, a hopeful posture, a, a posture of being shown mercy and so therefore to become merciful. Um, Dorothy Day said this. She goes, give only, <clears throat> give only if you are someone for whom giving is its own reward. Right? I mean, that's built even in, into the idea of grace, because um, grace is like definition is unmerited gift of God, right? So a gift, you don't earn it, right? But there's no strings attached to it. But even in Christian cultures, oh man, we like to put strings attached to it because we're like, you know, Jesus paid it all, blah, 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 and he died for you so that you can live for him. And it, it, it rhymes almost together. It's a nice little bumper sticker. But it communicates the message that the reason why Jesus saved you is so that you can go live a really, really wonderful, holy life and bring a lot of people to him and evangelize or whatever it might be, all these different strings attached. I'm telling you that's bullshit. Like Jesus died for you because he just loves you for who you are. It should change us and compel us, but man, there is no strings attached to that. None whatsoever. If you don't believe me, ask the thief on the cross that hung next to Jesus. There was absolutely no ROI on that one. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. No strings attached. No return on the investment. You and I are just loved because we are lovely. We are inherently valuable to the creator of the universe who also created us. We are loved because we are lovely. We have been shown mercy. Always, always. There's no strings attached. And I think this kind of pull yourself up from your bootstraps, it, it's a, it, it comes from a, you know, we, we treat others in that way, right? Like we, we, when we don't, when we're not merciful, we start taking on a posture that like somehow the reason why I don't need to be merciful is because 
Um, I did this all on my own. <laughs> I didn't receive any mercy. I did this. I pulled myself up from my bootstraps. So why don't you pull yourself up from your bootstraps? But it ignores the fact that we did, in fact, receive plenty of mercy. Uh, that privilege can be wonderfully blinding. I'll give you like a really practical example of this. That like Laura and I were on our fourth house, and and um, and there's no way we could afford this place currently. Um, but the only reason we can is because of the equity we made from the previous houses and we pulled up our bootstraps and blah, blah, blah. what we, we, cause privilege is so wonderfully blinding. What we don't, we so easily can forget is our first house was a low, a government reduced low, low income housing, um, place. And the government mandates a certain percentage of homes in any, um, neighborhood, be uh, reduced housing. And so we went with our realtor in the afternoon to go pick out and saw this house was available and we signed and we got it way, uh, way cheaper than we normally ever be before because we were we made us a, a certain lower income. And I was a pastor at the time and she was a teacher. And so it was like made for us this particular deal. Right. And so look at us, like, look what we did and accomplished and pulled up from our bootstraps. But we, we did that based upon the privilege of this government thing that was available to us. And the only reason why we're even able to know about it is because we had a friend that was a real estate agent that knew about it. And then we had the privilege and, and the, um, the, uh, uh, the benefit of being able to t- get off of work for both of us. And so we were able to go in the afternoon where other people couldn't. And we had transportation to get to this specific deal. So we had a real estate agent, transportation, and ability to build, leave work and get to this place, to even sign on the dotted line to get to that first house so we can eventually gain equity and get where we are now. It's all based on privilege. It's all based on mercy. And I could give you endless examples of that kind of thing happening in our lives like ridiculous amounts of mercy given to us. So no, we didn't pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. These have been gifts upon gifts that have been given to us in a variety of different ways and a variety of different means. So then therefore, when you, when you focus on that, when you remember how much you've been given mercy, you start being merciful. So yeah, you better believe it that we have an extra room in our current house and it's rarely not it's it's almost always occupied by someone. We have housed um, people that are experiencing homelessness and people that are struggling financially and single moms and complete strangers and college students and young adults and millennials. We have someone living with us right now. She's incredible. And we, we've, we've always had room in our house or on our couch. Or <laughs> I could tell you stories about <laughs> how full this house has been at times. And the reason why we do that is because we don't think we got to this house on our own. We were, were shown mercy. And so we live merciful. And the truly merciful, as Dr. Metzger puts it, realize their need for mercy. And so they show mercy to those in need. When it comes to like um, uh, social justice work, it, the term for it is called trauma-informed care. So um, one way of viewing people that are, um, you know, a variety of different things, like whether it's homelessness or refugee resettlement, whatever it's like these like kind of more robust, um, vulnerable people groups, right? 
oftentimes there's two different philosophy philosophy of approaches. One of them is to just be try to do a behavior modification in someone. So if someone's um, wanting to fight another person, then um, well, let's give the example. Like let's say a, uh, you're running a uh, homeless youth shelter and you catch a girl with a knife under her pillow, and she, and so. Uh, a not trauma informed, a behavior modification philosophy would say, "Well, we don't allow any weapons on the premise, so you're out of here, booted." Trauma informed question or uh, trauma informed care would ask a better better question. They wouldn't just address what happened; they would ask the question, "Why is it happening? Why is this 13 year old girl feel like the only way she can go to sleep at night is to have a deadly weapon underneath her, easily accessible just in case? What happened in her life that demands that she must always be on the defensive, even when she sleeps? That's trauma-informed care. At the food bank, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the person, the client that comes in and starts complaining that we don't have lactose-free milk. <laughs> like, you know, we have volunteers that kind of get annoyed. I get why. You know, it's, it is kind of funny, right? <laughs> like, really? Are you serious? And they'll complain that we don't have certain elements. But the trauma-informed – so that's behavior modification, right? Would say like, hey, stop your whining. Be thankful for what you have. Stop your complaining. Either that or get out, right? Trauma-informed care – would be to ask, why is that person complaining? Perhaps, maybe, just maybe, it's because that's the one time um, a week that they're able to feel a bit human. As I learned from uh, Stan Mitchell this morning, that you know that you and I, we can go to any restaurant or any grocery store, and we can complain about all kinds of stuff. If there's lactose-free milk missing at, at the QFC, you better believe it, I'm going to complain, because my boy needs some lactose-free. H- how come you guys didn't plan accordingly? What the heck? Did you look in the back? Like, I can do that, right? It's a privilege of mine. And people experiencing homelessness or severe poverty, they don't get that. So maybe, just maybe, the reason why they're complaining is because it's the best way to feel normal again. And it's maybe the one safe place they can do that because they've, we, you, the food banks had a reputation of mercy and so they feel like they can get away with it. See how we ask the why and not just the what? Tony Chris, uh, a mentor of mine, he says it in kind of a comical fashion. He goes, when I give money to homeless people i like to give them like 20 dollars because you can get like really drunk on 20 bucks <laughs> and, and what but you gotta ask like what's behind that right like wh- why it's because if, if if i didn't have anyone to call and i was homeless and i didn't have anyone that i could call and say can i crash on your couch or can you house me for a few weeks i had no relatives or relationships or friendships I would want to get really drunk that night too. And you realize that's oftentimes the catalyst for homelessness is you and I, we all have this privilege, this safety net of relationships that are underneath us, of friends and family and neighbors that love us and know us and churches. And we have this this network of people that we're in relationship with that holds us. So if, if you lose a job or there's a tragedy or some kind of illness that this, when you fall, you that safety net catches you. When people oftentimes fall into homelessness, is because that safety net's missing. That privilege does not exist in their lives. And so, when we're able to ask the why and not just the what, it develops empathy in us. It allows us to remind us how much mercy we have been shown, so that there and for there in turn, we can give, we can become merciful.
Perhaps um, Micah 6, 8, this classic scripture that you might know, says it far better than I do. It says, he has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I really, really like that passage because it balances things really well, too. Like, I get it. It's like, you know, like, then what do we do? Just we just go around and just get taken advantage of all the time? Are we supposed to be a doormat, Kyle? No, 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 no. No, God cares about justice, restorative justice, by the way, not punitive justice, but restorative kind of justice meant to restore shalom and make things right and make things whole. Um, we'll get to that later on and when we go into blessed are the peacemakers. But that's why we don't just like post on social media about justice. We don't just read articles about justice. You know, we don't teach classes or give sermons about justice. No, the, according to Micah 6 8, we do justice. Like we, we do it. We get to work. Like we pass out food at the food bank. We, um, we, I, we invite people into our home. We, we extend mercy to people. We're merciful. We, 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 we believe in people. We hope. We trust. We try to restore and, and address systemic racism and gender inequality. We notice the privileges that we have that we're not, we weren't aware of. We, we address our blind spots. We, we look for ways to make shalom return back into the world. We do justice. But for me, the biggest thing lately is I, I just am finding more and more areas of my life that I've been complicit in unjust systems and institutions. The biggest one, of course, is, um, you know, for years working, like I was, I remember the, um, I posted on Twitter not too long ago, just when the whole um, United Methodist um, thing happened this, earlier this week, right? And they voted again that they don't want to allow um, the LGBTQ community to be fully affirmed and um and uh, recognized within their denomination. And it, it just, it, it was really triggering for me because it reminded me of not too long ago at all, the um, probably the 10 years of my life that I was willfully ignorant of the being a benefit, uh, being a beneficiary and receiving uh, the privilege of working in a, in churches that were, willfully ignorant of the, the the community of the LGBTQ that that um, I didn't even attempt to understand their stories and the nuances and spectrum of sexuality and gender I I just I, I wasn't even interested in it I just you know that it's Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve I just I was so willfully ignorant for at least 10 years. And then for probably five more years, I was just complicit. Like I, I did know better. I started to have friends that were a part of the LGBTQ community. I, I started to hear stories. My, my um, deconstruction of my face started to occur. I, um, compassion started to grow. I, I started to question some of the long-held beliefs I had about that community um, my biases and prejudices were starting to be slowly eliminated and eroded around me. And yet I was complicit for five years, still working 
and making great money in institutions that were actively oppressing an entire people group. And I, and I say that because uh, to do justice means that I can't be complicit any longer. To do justice means that um, that I actively work to, in my current um, profession and in, in every area, to make the um, the current state of gender inequality um, to f- actively work against that, to uh, look for ways to advocate for women that I work alongside, to acknowledge my own privilege as a male in many, many different work situations, that an idea coming from me can oftentimes be heard easier than it is from a female, and to just shut my mouth and let others speak and still... And and I used to mansplain so much, and just to to recognize all these different subtle ways that I can I can start doing justice in my life, doing the hard work of making things equitable and fair and justice again. But then that's why it goes right along, alongside. I kind of went off on tangent there, didn't I? Um, <laughs> that's why it goes right alongside um, do justice, and then it says to love mercy, right? That Micah six a. Yeah, we're still on that. Um, <laughs> let's land this plane because the idea of loving mercy is crazy, guys. Like we breeze past that, like oh yeah, love mercy. Can you imagine throwing a party for a convicted felon who had the evidence stacked against him, but the judge decided to award no jail time? This is loving mercy. Like it's it's this countercultural way of living that goes it flies in the face of our dog eat dog, pull yourself up by our bootstraps kind of world. Like to love mercy is to celebrate when someone doesn't get what they deserve. Or even better, when they someone it's it's to throw a party when someone gets something that they do not deserve. That's loving mercy. Right, when someone gets a raise and you're like, "Man, you didn't work hard enough for that," it, it, it's it's when someone gets promoted and 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 uh, you felt like they didn't deserve it. So when someone gets recognized and maybe you should have, it, it's it's loving mercy that goes right alongside the act of doing justice. Right, where it's I love the tension that those two create, and no wonder it it demands that we walk humbly with our God. So I guess to wrap things up is I have found the best way to become merciful is to remember all the ways I've been shown mercy. Because to, to believe that I did it all myself, to reinforce that, it's really easy. It's super, super easy. It pads my ego. It's, it's, it's not that hard. It doesn't take a lot of work. It's like, it's like Velcro. And like, to talk, it's like remembering all the negative things that happen in your life is like the same almost as remembering all the things you did yourself. <laughs> but to, to concentrate on the ways that we've been shown mercy, to be grateful and thankful for the, the privileges that we've been given, this is, um, if you're hearing my voice, you, you, you speak English probably, and you probably live in America. That's an insane amount of privilege. That we have been given. And that sticks to us like Teflon. Like it slides right off oftentimes. It takes a lot of work to concentrate on in order for it to really stick in our brains and change the way we see and view our world around us. 
So this week, like, if you're, this is the rest of your commute time, like, take the rest of it. Just turn off the damn radio, sit in silence, and take time to celebrate and be thankful and remember all the ways that you have been shown mercy. That you've been given gifts. That you have this wonderful safety net of relationships around you. That you and I are... are um are no different from those that um that have experienced homelessness we 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 just been given this remarkable privilege of relationships and so that uh, for, forces me to extend mercy to others to then therefore begin building relationships with those experiencing homelessness see how that works or maybe it's the coworker that you're driving to right now that just is like bugging the heck out of you. Like, remember how you got to this place. It was not all you're doing. That you experienced mercy at work. Someone believed in you. Someone trusted. Someone hoped. And so then we do in response. I've noticed it creates a sustainable pace for me when I when I stop putting strings attached to things. That I just give freely that I believe, that we open up our house widely. That's, I'll, I'll tell you that. That's probably the biggest lesson we've learned from hosting people is we've just stopped expecting much from people in return. Because if you get in the mode of like, they didn't do the dishes or they didn't clean up after themselves, if you get in that mode, oh man, it's a great way to just get bitter <laughs> if you're hosting someone. And so we've just learned, Laura and I were like, you know what? Just gotta, we just can't have any expectations. We just have to just host. We just have to love. And, and it's not for their sake. It's like for our sake. Seriously, it is. It just helps us be more joyful, to be more free, to be more loving, to be more merciful if we just take those expectations away. And we're still pleasant, we're pleasantly surprised when someone does do the dishes or someone <laughs> does clean after themselves. You know, there's there's that. And there's sometimes when you have to have some boundaries and things just get, you know, I get that. But in general, man, to just release ourselves from those expectations frees us to be merciful. And it's a much better way to live. It's a sustainable pace for the kind of compassion that we want to extend to the world. Does that make sense, guys? Uh, we got through it. Blessed are the merciful slash strings attached. May you grow in this kind of grace this week. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.